So I'm going to switch it up and stand down here this time. Just try to keep people guessing a little bit. You know? uh, but my name is Thomas. I'm the campus minister here with RUF. If I haven't met you yet, love to meet you. Uh, but at RUF, we believe that you're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And at the same time, you're never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. And what that means is that uh, God's grace to us in the person of Jesus is the most central thing that we want you to deal with every week at RUF. So we're going to sing songs about Jesus. We're going to read scripture about Jesus. You're going to hear a message from me about Jesus. That's what RUF is all about. And every semester, uh, we go through a sermon series uh, through a different book of the Bible, uh, and we just kind of consider what it is that God would have to say to us in his word. And this semester, we're going through the book of Exodus, and we're doing a series called Knowing God. Uh, The book of Exodus, if you're unfamiliar with it, it's the second book in the Bible, uh, and it just kind of tells a story that is repeated again and again throughout the Bible. Um, The Exodus would have been an event that would have uh, really shaped the imagination of pretty much everybody who wrote the Bible, the people who read the Bible. When they thought about things, they thought in Exodus terms. And actually, when Jesus described his own ministry in life, he used the language of the Exodus to describe it. And so this series is called Knowing God. Exodus shows us a God who reveals himself, a God who wants to be known. And so today we're going to be looking at uh, kind of the continuing on the beginning of the story, a little bit of Exodus 1 and Exodus 2. Um, So how many of you guys have seen the 1984 movie Karate Kid? Okay, decent amount of people. That's good. Um, So I'm sure some of you know that the Netflix show Cobra Kai is actually based on it. I was prepared to have to tell people that, but I'm glad that most of you know that. Um, So if you don't know the story of Karate Kid, if you haven't seen it, uh, it tells the story of this kid, Daniel, or as he becomes known, Daniel-san. I feel weird saying Daniel-san, though, so I'm just going to stick with Daniel. Uh, But Daniel gets bullied by some kids from this Cobra Kai dojo. And the Cobra Kai Dojo is kind of like the bad guys in every way, shape, and form. He gets bullied by them, and then he uh, tries to learn karate to defend himself and beat them in this competition. And he enlists the help of Mr. Miyagi, who is kind of like a karate master, and I think also a janitor, maybe? I don't know. I might be remembering that wrong. It's been a while since I've seen the movie. But if you've seen it, you know that Mr. Miyagi's teaching techniques are uh, maybe like unorthodox, to say the least. Uh, Daniel comes to him, and he's expecting him to teach him all of this stuff about karate. But instead, what uh, Mr. Miyagi has him doing is things like painting fences, uh, sanding floors, waxing cars, and painting houses. And he's just doing these repetitive motions, painting a fence, or like sanding a floor, or the wax on, wax off of a car. And he's so frustrated, Daniel is, like he thinks he's being taken advantage of. Because this whole time while he's doing all of these things, uh, Mr. Miyagi is just kind of off doing whatever he wants. At one point, you see him kind of come back after Daniel's been painting this fence and he's wearing like a Hawaiian shirt and stumbling a little bit like he's been at a bar or something. And another time he comes back and clearly he's been fishing. And at some point, it just wells up in Daniel and he's like, what the heck, dude? Like I have been doing all of these tasks while you're out doing nothing. Like, you're supposed to be teaching me how to defend myself. And there's like this iconic scene where Daniel finally confronts Mr. Miyagi. And then slowly, 
Mr. Miyagi starts to show him how all of these seemingly random things that he had him doing, painting fences, sanding floors, waxing cars, and painting houses, they were actually giving him muscle memory for all these defensive moves that he would need to know if he was ever going to defeat the guys from the Cobra Kai dojo. You see, though it looks like he was off doing nothing, it turns out that Mr. Miyagi was at work teaching Daniel in ways that he couldn't understand. And the passage that we're looking at this evening, it would have left the original audience in a similar place to Daniel-san. Uh, in this passage, we see stories of suffering, and we see stories of failure. We see Israel suffering in Egypt under a tyrant king who again and again seems hell-bent on destroying them from the face of the earth. And we also see the would-be rescuer of the people of Israel in this passage act rashly and get himself exiled from Egypt. It's a sad story of suffering. It's a sad story of failure. But through it all, we see this kind of common thread of God being at work amidst the chaos. So as we look at this passage this evening, we're going to see this kind of main idea. God is at work. God is at work. God is the type of God who works in our suffering. He's the type of God who works in our failure, and he does all of this for his glory and for our good. So if you're a note taker, I'm just going to have three points for us tonight. Uh, The first is God is at work in our suffering. The second, God is at work in our failure. And then third and finally, how do we know God is at work? How do we know? Uh, So I'm going to pray for us and we can go ahead and get started. Let's pray. Father, as we turn to your word I pray that you would open our eyes. Lord, we long to see more of you. Uh, Will you open our eyes and will you open our hearts? Uh, Help us to understand you for who you are. And all these things I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so first thing we're going to see here is that God is at work in our suffering. God is at work in our suffering. Uh, So verse 22 that we kind of read there at the beginning, uh, we see kind of the the backdrop for this passage. So if you were here last week, you know that there was this story of slavery and suffering. That Pharaoh, uh, when the people of Israel started to multiply, he decided that he wanted to try and eliminate them because he was threatened by them. And the story kept getting worse and worse. It started with the people being under these taskmasters, and then they were enslaved, and then it moved to genocide. And we saw that this was thwarted by these two Hebrew midwives. But then we see here, kind of in the backdrop of this passage, that Pharaoh has decided to double down on his original plan. He says, every son that is born to the Hebrews, that's just another name for Israelites, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. I just want to kind of camp out on this for a second and just imagine, like, can you imagine the difficulty of being an Israelite at a time like this? Like, they didn't have the technology that we had such that, like, when you have, uh, when, when, like, a woman gets pregnant, you can tell the gender. So, like, a woman is raising this, this child. She is uh, pregnant for nine months. She has no idea whether it's going to be a boy or a girl. Like, can you imagine the anxiety of that? Like, if she has a healthy boy in this time, she's going to have to give this child up knowing that it's going to be thrown into a river and drowned. Can you imagine the anxiety that would produce? And then the scar that that would leave on an entire generation, an entire generation that would have no men. And then uh, if you know anything about the geography of Egypt, 
uh, Israel is, is in Egypt at this time. These babies would have been thrown into the Nile. There's no way that they could have gotten anywhere without walking past the Nile. So can you imagine what that must feel like? Like how traumatic that must be for someone who would have had a baby and had it thrown into the Nile. And every single day, they have to walk past that and be reminded. Like it's a trauma that would have marked an entire generation. But in the midst of this suffering, we see light begin to shine. We see it through a birth. Moses is telling the story of his own birth. We see this in verses 1 and 2. So Moses is born, and his mom, when she sees him, it says she saw that he was a fine child. So she hid him for three months. So she was able to hide him. Apparently, he was a quiet enough baby. She was able to hide him for three months. And then after a while, it started to get a little noisy, so they had to come up with a different plan. So we see in verses 3 and 4, his mother builds him kind of this basket uh, that she's going to put him in and put him in the reeds in the river. And the idea with this is that he could kind of stay still in the reeds. So during the day, whenever the Egyptian officials might be coming by to look and see for these male children, they were going to put him in the reeds and he would just stay there and he couldn't be heard. And then they would go get him in the evening. I don't know if if you've seen uh, the movie Prince of Egypt, but it kind of gave me this idea that what she was trying to do with uh, making this basket was just kind of like a Hail Mary of like, we're going to put the baby in here. We're going to throw it down the river, cross our fingers and just hope that it turns out well. (laughs) But that's that's actually not what was going on here. What she was trying to do, this was kind of like putting a baby in daycare. (laughs) That's what they were trying to do. And then this is going pretty well for a little bit, but then something that you would think would be really terrible happens. This basket that contains this child is discovered by Pharaoh's daughter. Someone in Pharaoh's own house, an Egyptian, discovers it. But we see, surprisingly, in verse 6, she opens this basket, sees the crying child, recognizes that it is an Israelite child, and has compassion and has pity. We see here that Pharaoh's plans are subverted. And this is the kind of the third time in this book already uh, that Pharaoh's plans are subverted by a woman. This entire story, Pharaoh is constantly trying to eliminate the men because he thinks that if he eliminates the men, then he's going to eliminate the threat. But we see here, ironically, that God chooses to work through women. It appears that he doesn't need the men in order to accomplish his purpose here. So his plans are subverted by a woman yet again, and it's someone in his own household. And as uh, Pharaoh's daughter finds this baby, Moses' sister was watching and kind of inserts herself into the situation. She comes up to Pharaoh's daughter and asks her, should I go get you a nurse from the Hebrew women? And the uh, Pharaoh's daughter says, yeah, that's a great idea. So she tells her to go. And she goes and she fetches Moses' mother. And if you're in kind of like the original audience, the Israelites who read this for the first time, they would have just laughed at how amazing this was. Because, I mean, think about it. This is a time where, like, a boy being raised and being safe was not allowed. Like, every male child was under threat at this time. And not only is, this, is Moses safe, his own mother is getting paid to raise him. Like they would have laughed at this because it was so amazing to see God's work in this way. Moses' mother is ultimately paid to raise her own child. 
So in the midst of this profound time of suffering, we see that God was at work preserving and preparing a deliverer for his people. I think what we see here is that God is a judo master. Judo master. I don't know if you know anything about judo. I know very little. But I do know this, uh, that judo is the type of martial art where someone who is much smaller can actually, like, better someone who is a lot bigger. Because it's kind of the idea behind judo is that you use your opponent's momentum to redirect it back to them and hurt them. And that's what we see God doing here with suffering. We see this, this is a real problem that's happening. This is real suffering that the Israelite people are going through. But we see God turn it on, his, on its head and use it against Pharaoh and use it to accomplish his own purposes. God does this with our suffering. He redirects it to work his own purposes. So what does this mean for us that God is at work in our suffering? I think it would be really easy for us to say, it's like, well, then that must mean that our suffering really doesn't matter on some level because God's at work. But I think it's important for us to know that this this does not mean that our suffering ceases to be suffering. Like I know many of you have been through a lot of really hard things in your life. And I want to tell you, this does not mean that you're not allowed to feel those things. This does not mean that you're not allowed to feel those things. God's work doesn't mean that we have to deny our pain. There are things that happen to us that are still painful, even though God is at work in them. God was at work uh, raising up Moses to deliver his people, but there were still mothers whose children were cast into the Nile. God was at work saving Moses and, and and allowing his mom to be in his life, but she still had to give him up when he turned four. There were still scars that came from this. See, and if you're having trouble believing this, uh, I would just encourage you to look look at the Psalms. The Psalms, which is like the divinely inspired songbook in the Old Testament. The majority of them are what's called a lament, which is a sad song. A song that, that lays a troubled situation before God and asks him to do something. Or just names the fact that it doesn't seem like he's doing something. You see, being, being a godly person, being the type of person who believes that God is at work doesn't mean that we have to deny the reality of our pain. It doesn't mean that we have to deny the fact that losing a parent hurts. It doesn't mean that we have to deny the fact that depression is really scary and overwhelming. It doesn't mean that. But what it does mean is that our suffering is not the end of the story. It's not the end of the story. See, we're given an imagination here. How, how is God going to judo master our suffering? How is he going to turn this suffering on its head? And I don't know about you, but I mean, in my own life, I think of some of the hardest things in my life. And it's not hard for me to see the ways that God has used the things that I've suffered to really make me into a person who is kinder and more like Jesus. And I think in particular, like depression and anxiety is a pretty large part of my story. And it's not fun. <laughs> like I don't enjoy it. But I will say it gives me an opportunity to talk to people and to understand what they're going through. It gives me an opportunity to relate. It gives me an opportunity to extend the kindness of Jesus to people 
in that place. So how is God using your suffering as a connection point? And I think if you're having trouble doubting, like you're still doubting even this, I would encourage you to look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Like who is the type of person that Jesus went towards in the Gospels? It was people who were suffering. It was the suffering people that Jesus ran towards. He, he had compassion when he saw suffering people, when he saw broken people. You see, God is at work in our suffering. But not only is God at work in our suffering, we see also here that God is at work in our failure. God is at work in our failure. If you would look with me to verse 11. It says, One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. So the narrative at this point has kind of, it's skipped forward about 36 years. We're told from other places in the Bible that Moses is about 40 when this happens. And so from age four, Moses has been raised in Pharaoh's house. So he was educated in Egypt. Uh, he probably never had to worry about where his food was going to come from. And we can see from other things in the passage that he probably had some degree of ability to kind of come and go as he pleases. Uh, because we see in verse 11 twice, it repeats, uh, Moses went out to his people and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. So Moses still had some sort of idea that he was actually an Israelite, even though he was raised in Egypt. And he had some degree of, of understanding of who his family was. So Moses is in like the very definition of a privileged position here. He would have had the best education. He would have had everything you could ever ask for. But so we see kind of a situation where Moses sees an Egyptian beating an Israelite. He sees injustice happening. And he has in he he sees this kind of desire for justice kind of well up in him. And what does he do with it? We see in verse 12 that he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. So he takes matters into his own hands. That's what we see him do. And I think we can imagine that his motivation was probably relatively pure, right? He looked out and he saw the suffering of his kinsmen. And he says, like, I can do something about it, so I'm going to do something. So he takes matters into his own hands. But how is this received? Uh, Moses thought that when he was doing this, he was doing it in secret. But then we see in verses 13 and 14, the next day Moses goes out and he sees two Israelite people in a fight and he tries to get in the middle and break them up. And then one of them stops and says, hey man, like who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? You gotta think like Moses like probably crapped his pants right then. So he's just like, oh my gosh, I had no idea people knew this. He thought he was being secretive, but it turns out people knew about it. And when this man says, like, who made you a prince and a judge over us? That's like deeply sarcastic. Deeply sarcastic. And so Moses' response, we see, he says, surely the thing is known. And then it tells us that Pharaoh tries to kill him and he runs off to Midian, which would have been out in the boonies. So Moses is leaving this privileged position that he had in Egypt, and now he's in exile. He would have had this ability from this privileged position to probably do a lot of good things for the Israelite people. And now he's squandered that. 
He has no opportunity to affect change. He's gone. But despite him losing his privileged position, God is at work in Moses' failure. We see in this passage, Moses arrogantly assumes the role of prince and judge. And if you've read the rest of Exodus, um, let me just break you off a little of the preview here. Uh, Moses actually ends up being just that in Israel. He ends up being the prince. He ends up being the ruler. He ends up being the decider. God eventually gives him that role. He ends up being kind of the person in the Old Testament who really there's no one on his level, like the most revered person in the Old Testament scriptures. And we see here that Moses is exiled, but later he's going to become the rescuer. And this kind of over-desire that we see for justice here, we see later that he's changed into a type of person who wants God's justice. We see him become a person who is zealous to do what God wants him to do. So what we see through this is that God's work in Moses' life, it's not in spite of his failure. God's not working around it, but he's actually working through his failure. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of uh, this Japanese pottery repair technique called kintsugi. Anybody? No? Okay, a couple people. Uh, so kintsugi is a, it's like a artistic pottery repair thing, but it's also kind of a philosophy on life. And the idea is that uh, a lot of times when things break, we try to put them back together exactly as they were before. So like imagine a piece of pottery. Uh, but kintsugi kind of has a different philosophy where when things break, they put them back together using this like golden lacquer that highlights the break. And when you look at it, it's just like, it's absolutely stunning and beautiful. These old pieces of pottery that have this stream of gold running through them. And the idea is that there's something in breaking and repairing that is beautiful. That things are somehow mysteriously, strangely more beautiful when they've been broken and put back together. And I think that's a good like image for how God works in our failure. That somehow mysteriously, even though our failure is still failure, God somehow highlights it with gold and mysteriously we're more beautiful than we were before through it. So how does God, knowing that God is at work in our failure, change us? What does that do in our lives? I think uh, when we fail, uh, whether it's, you know, a personal, uh, whether it's a failure in a relationship, we say something to someone that's just terrible, uh, whether it's a personal struggle with sin or, or addiction, um, I think there's a couple different ways that we can respond to that sort of failure. I think the first is we can just be absolutely crushed by it. Like the image of who we thought we were is just slowly taken away from us and we're depressed. Or on the other side, I think we can try to like desperately hold on to our identity apart from this thing and get really defensive about our failures. But see, when we know that God is at work in our failure, when we know that he's not just sidestepping around it, when we know that we're not messing up his plan through our failure, we are freed from being crushed by our failures. We're freed from being crushed because we know that God is still at work. That he still loves us, that he still works through it. That he doesn't need us to be anxiously avoiding failure our whole lives. 
See, the Bible is actually very realistic about our propensity to fail as human beings. Like again and again, the Bible is extremely realistic. Like in every major figure, I challenge you, read through the Old Testament, every major figure is like astonishingly bad. Astonishingly bad. And I think it's telling us something here that we don't have to be crushed by our failures. That God is the sort of God who works through them. But knowing that God works through our failures, we also don't have to be defensive. We don't have to be defensive. We don't have to avoid saying, you know, I messed up. We can own it. We can own it. And I think the reason we can own this is is because the fact that God is at work in our failure, it shows us something of God's tender care for us. God is tender towards us in our failure. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, I think especially of the story of Peter, uh, when I think about failure, Peter was a really headstrong disciple that we read about in the New Testament. He tells Jesus, I'm never going to deny you. Never. Even if anybody else falls away, it's not going to be me. I'm not going to deny you. And then Jesus says, you're going to deny me three times tonight. And he does it. He denies him three times, and he's completely covered in shame. And then Jesus goes to the cross, and he rises again, and then he comes back and sees Peter. And what does he do to Peter? He asks Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And what's he doing there? It could be interpreted that he's kind of shaming him, but I think what he's doing is he's restoring him. He's showing him that he loves him, that he wants to use him. This Peter who has denied Jesus three times later on in the book of Acts, we see that he's used to confront other people in their denial of Jesus. You see, that's how God works. He uses us at the very point of our failure, at the very point of our brokenness to display his glory, to display his beauty. There's no failure that he can't work through. So this all sounds really good, right? I mean, I think whether you are here tonight and you would describe yourself as a committed Christian or whether you're kind of somewhere else, I think we all want to have this kind of assurance that the things that happen to us, the things that we suffer, the areas in our lives where we're a victim or the areas in our lives where we fail, maybe the areas where we're a villain, we want to believe on some level that that isn't just meaningless. That the things that we do wrong and the things that are wrong that are done to us, that they're somehow a part of this greater story. Uh, We say things like, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Or everything happens for a reason. And those are like really pretty things to say and to think about. But is there any like basis in reality? Is there any reason that we can actually say that? We desperately want to believe that what lies ahead is better than what is behind us. We want history in some sense to be progressive, right? We want things to be better tomorrow than they were yesterday. But is there any basis for that sort of thinking? Or are we just kind of projecting our longings onto the universe? Is there any reality to that? I think there is, and we see it in this passage. 
if you would look with me to verse 23. And this picks up after Moses has kind of settled in Midian and he started a family. And we see the, the king of Egypt has died, but the situation for the Israelites has continued to be terrible. It says in verse 23, the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue came up to God. And then we see kind of the, the answer to this longing here in verses 24 and 5. How do we know that God is, God is at work? I think we see it here. It says, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. There's a lot there. Like a lot there. God hears his people's groaning. God remembers his covenant. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. I mean, it's, it's beautiful language, but I just want to, for the sake of time, focus on one thing here. All right, it says, God remembered his covenant. God remembered his covenant. Uh, covenant is a Bible word. If you read through the Old Testament, it's used a lot. Um, a covenant is just kind of another word for a special relationship. It's a special relationship that is uh, more personal than a contract, and it's more permanent than a normal relationship. And throughout the Old Testament, we see that this is the way that God chooses to relate to his people. He makes covenants. He made a covenant with Adam and Eve, made a covenant with Noah, makes covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, again and again. And we see that he reminds his people of these covenants. And this is how the Israelites could know that God was at work in their suffering and failure because of God's covenant. You see, the covenant was a point where God himself came into history and gave objective grounding for his actions in the world. See, the, the subjective experience that the original audience had here for God's work in their suffering and failure was rooted in this objective historical reality that God made a covenant with his people. They could know that God was at work in their suffering. They could know that God was at work in their failure because of these promises that were made long before to their ancestors. So that's, I mean, that's great for them, but what about us thousands of years later? What do these covenant promises have to do with us? You see, Israel could know that God was at work because they looked back to these covenants that God had made. But these covenants themselves were actually looking forward. They were looking forward to the person of Jesus. They were looking forward to Jesus. We can know God is at work because Jesus himself walked out of the grave. What do we see when we look at the cross? We see Jesus suffering for us. And through his suffering, the greatest thing that's ever happened happens. We are brought into the family of God. Sinners are given relationship with God. Jesus' suffering brings about joy for us. And then when Jesus goes to the cross, it would have been viewed as a failure for everyone. The Son of God, the Messiah, comes, and then he dies a criminal's death. It was viewed as an ultimate failure. And then he rose from the dead. We see what people thought was his greatest failure was actually God's ultimate victory. You see, if God was at work in the cross, the Son of God, Jesus, dying a criminal's death, what can't he be at work in? See, if God could redeem something as horrible 
as the Son of God dying. What in your life can't he redeem? You see, if you want this sort of living in this world where we know that our suffering is not the end, where we know that our failure is not the end, it's available to you through Jesus. Through Jesus. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you for...